Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays. This episode of Other People is not brought to you by anyone. But I figured since it's Christmas Day, I would try to do something in the spirit of things and say that this episode is brought to you by the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Its mission is to provide effective means for the prevention of cruelty to animals throughout the United States, working nationally to rescue animals from abuse, to pass humane laws, and to share resources with many shelters across the country. Uh, would you like to do something nice for some animals who can't speak for themselves and who really desperately need your help, visit ASPCA.org and make a donation. And uh, you've seen their commercials, right? You know this song. You know those commercials with the sad animals staring out at you from cages. It's intolerable. It's hard to watch. We have to do something about this. It's Christmas. Open your wallet. Hand it over. Visit ASPCA.org. And if you can, please do something to help the cause. The ASPCA... It's an organization that works to prevent cruelty to animals. Go and support it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> All right, right, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the official Christmas spectacular. This is me overanalyzing things publicly. Thank you for being here. Merry Christmas. For those of you who celebrate uh, the holiday, I'm Brad Listy, recording here in Los Angeles as usual. My guest today is Matilda Bernstein Sycamore whose new memoir, The End of San Francisco, is now available from City Lights Books. It is great to have Matilda on the show. I had a lot of fun talking with her. Uh, though, I must admit, I feel like I might have uh, set a new record for awkwardness in this one, in my performance as the host. I, I don't know. I, I'm getting, I get very self-critical. And as many of my longtime listeners probably... Uh, no, I can get uh, a little nervous when I'm talking with a guest who has had uh, dramatically difficult life experiences and has written about them with uh, bracing honesty, clarity, and insight. 
And uh, likewise, I can get uh, I can get nervous if we're discussing matters that are sensitive, like uh, you know, race, or in in this particular case, sexual orientation, uh, gender identity, and all of the stuff that goes along with that, from a, a socio political perspective, and so on. I don't know. Like maybe you know, maybe it's just the holidays, and I'm overtired, and I'm overthinking it. I've been recording a lot. I've been doing a lot of shows. I've been tweeting too much. I've been racing around town shopping. I've been uh, trying to uh, take care of my uh, child, my wife. And then, you know, trying to get these episodes done before I leave town for the holidays. So, uh, you know, you'll just have to see. I want to do a good job is what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to fuck it up. And, uh, the reality is that I come into these conversations relatively cold. That's the formula. And, uh, that's actually like how I prefer it. Uh, but when I'm talking to someone, uh, you know, whose life experiences, uh, are considerably different from my own, um, or that, you know, have, a, a, you know, been very difficult, the cultural context is different. I think I worry about covering that distance and making sure that I conduct myself intelligently. So, you know, these are good impulses, but the problem with those impulses I'm finding, which at their core are very decent, I think, impulses, is that they're not uh, always helpful when it comes to hosting a show like this. I think you have to be sort of fearless when you're in the conversation itself. I know this, but I don't always remember it. I need to check my neuroses at the door. Just go with it once I'm in it. I need to compartmentalize. Do you like how I'm preemptively critiquing my own performance <laughs> on the Christmas episode? No less. I am uh, preemptively crucifying myself. I am Pontius Pilate and Jesus at the same time, as are we all because, uh, we contain multitudes. I am Pontius piloting myself. Is that a verb? Pontius piloting? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So here's the good news. Matilda uh, is a great and very gracious guest, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing from her. So rather than have me just continue babbling, let's do this. Merry Christmas. Let's make a quasi-seamless transition Uh, to the main event okay this right here is matilda bernstein sycamore and her new memoir once again is called the end 
of San Francisco. Well, right now I'm in Boston. Um, I'm actually here at the end of my book tour for the end of San Francisco. But then I decided to spend a month in Boston because I'm writing this new novel. Um, it's called Sketch to See, and it takes place in Boston in 95-96. Um, and I did live here in 95, but I haven't lived here since then. And so I wanted to come back to Boston to get not the literal memories, because I don't actually think it's useful for that, but the sensory memories of the place, like place and space and say, like, how long it takes to walk to a particular place or what the light looks like at a particular time of day, you know, or walking, you know, to the Esplanade on the Charles River and, oh, you know, like things I've discovered that are great, like, oh, I forgot about this bridge that you walk across the thoroughfare, you know, or, oh, the way the light looks at a particular time of day on the John Hancock Tower, which the narrator in the book is kind of obsessed with. Um, so has it changed so a lot? Like has it changed a lot since '95? I mean, do you walk around and see like a completely different city, or is there is there a lot familiar? Well, I think everywhere has changed since '95, but Boston has changed less. Um, and Boston has never been one of my favorite places. In fact, it might be at the bottom of the list. Why? 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 <laughs> uh, well, I just think Boston is super conservative, socially conservative, and rigidly um, kind of parochial in outlook and really racist and homophobic in super blatant ways and also... Um, well, wait, that's interesting yeah, to me. That's interesting to me because Massachusetts has this kind of like stock reputation as being like a liberal paradise or something. No? Yeah, I mean, people are like, oh, it's a, the cradle of democracy, you know. There's so many schools there. I mean, what do you mean? Isn't there all this, like, intellectual ferment? And I think it's – I was actually thinking about that, the fact that there are probably more colleges in Boston per capita than any other city in the U.S. And the fact that it remains so conservative and so, like, frightened of difference across the board – is, you know, whether you're talking about, like, upper-class, blue-blood, you know, um, kind of rarefied Boston or, you know, like, super working-class Irish-American or Italian-American, there's still this, like, cloistered um, fear of, of difference or of, like, you know, upending the social order. And um, I don't have it totally figured out, but you definitely feel that kind of clampdown. Um, probably more than anywhere else I've lived except D.C., which is where I grew up. Okay, so where should – what's the best city in the United States to live in? I, and this is like a really inane <laughs> – it's a really inane topic of conversation that I insist on having over and over again. Like where should the freaks go? Like where where are all the good people? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, well, I don't – you know, I don't have the answer to that question anymore. You know, I think um, in a lot of ways the end of San Francisco, uh, my book is kind of about that because I moved there – in the early 90s, um, when I was 19, and I was searching for, you know, freaks and outsiders and artists and activists and anarchists and druggies and dropouts and, um, you know, people who were intent on creating radical outsider culture to challenge the violence of the world around us and also to create something else. And that was my most formative place. It is where I figured out how to create my own culture and community and love and lust and intimacy and activism on my own terms. And, and, but it's also the place that's let me down the most. 
And in the book, I'm kind of investigating that question, like, did it ever actually exist as I think it did informing me? Was it always there and always ending? Um, and so while I, I would definitely say San Francisco is the place that has formed me the most, and I think for any kind of radical um, outsider, especially any kind of queer person, in some ways it still exists that way, but it's been so decimated by, you know, the last two decades of hypergentrification, of homogenization, of corporatization, and and assimilation, and now it kind of mimics, like any other gross, you know, uh, overly expensive, you know, commodity city, you know, like along the New York model, and, and I feel like everywhere is getting more whitewashed and, and gentrified, and I mean, there's definitely still places that aren't, but that doesn't necessarily mean they offer the same resources. Well, see, this is the thing that now, now I'm thinking of, like, for whatever reason, Las Vegas just flowered in my mind because Las Vegas was built... Uh, on a you know on a tract of land that was essentially unlivable, or you know I guess at first glance you wouldn't think like let's build a city here. Like maybe that's what needs to happen. Maybe we just maybe we just like we need to get a bunch of good people to find like a really shitty piece of real estate and just make it work, <laughs> and just start over, <laughs> just start over on like a blank canvas, you know. Yeah, it's hard to say because how do we find those people that we actually believe in? You know, that's the that's the, if I could have. There are 100 people that I could just move somewhere with and have, or maybe, or five. <laughs> right. I'm all for it, but I don't even know who they are. Well, okay, okay, so this is a question that I actually want to ask you, because this is something that's been occurring in my mind um, for a while now, and it has to do with the community building, which I think is, you know, it seems like really important work, finding a way to bring people together uh, around, it could be around activism. It could just be like, you know, people need friends. People need to feel a sense of, uh, interconnection with, uh, their neighbors or with people generally, you know? And I, w I find myself wondering like how to do that. I also find myself wondering, um, you know, since you've had, you have some experience in doing that, like what your feelings on it are in retrospect, like, is it possible to build a healthy human community? <laughs> Yeah, that's such a good question, because I think in my life, I've gravitated towards, like, finding people I really care about through activism, so through common projects that we're working on to sort of challenge the violence around us, and I really, really have believed in those relationships, and they've really, really let me down in such dramatic ways, both when the rhetoric doesn't match the reality, and also when... Um, you know, people change over time and move away from the ideals that I thought we were creating together. They're always fluid and shifting and um, changing ideals, but there's still like a core of things you kind of believe in. And when the people around you suddenly don't believe in them, or when even worse, when they say they believe in them, but then they act in kind of the gross, the grossest kind of opposite, contradictory, hypocritical ways. Um, well, no, I, I know that those things. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I, I have this very experience. You know, I I went to Boulder for undergrad, and uh, you know, I had this like hippie phase, and I was I had artistic leanings. I wanted to be a writer, and I was hanging out with everyone, and everyone, all my friends, we were all into like books, and we were trading books and watching movies, and we were excited about life. And I was like, I thought at the time, you know, for this narrow window of time where like my idealism might have been at its peak. Uh, I was like, we're all going to be artists. We're going to live these crazy lives. And like, 
within five years, like everyone had corporate jobs and I was the one holding the bag who was like, still. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, was this a joke? Like I had that sense, you know, like, was I the only fool who thought it was real? You know, like, am I the kid who still believes in Santa Claus? Like what happened? Yeah, I mean, I think we still need to believe in these these dreams that seem impossible. I think trading books, I love that anecdote, because, like, trading books was so important to me, you know, in my, like, formative years as well, and still is in some ways. But that thing of where you find something and you're like, this is what's keeping me alive, and then you connect to other people that are connecting to that same thing. There's something to be said for that, but it is also true that, that oftentimes... Um, you think you're connecting, and then it turns out you're connecting maybe about something totally different, like they liked your hair color or, <laughs> you know, the way, you know, you dressed or something. They, like, they liked my, like, flannel pants and puka shell necklace or whatever the hell it was that I was wearing back then. <laughs> Did you have one of those um, ponchos? I, probably. I had. I remember I had, like, one of those, like, really – I had, like, a, a necklace with, like, a, a – I guess it was, I don't even know what you call it, like a pendant, but it was made out of clay and there was like a marijuana leaf on it. <laughs> it was a, well, that would still be very popular in Colorado, I'm sure. Yeah, but, I mean, I guess, you know, but I feel like uh, my, my only, the only thing that redeems me is the fact that it was like a year and a half. I had like a very intense year and a half with the, uh, with the necklace and then eventually like I emerged from the fog, but it happened. So I guess I have to own it. Uh, and, and the other thing I want to ask you, uh, relative to community is, um, you know, in thinking about this and in thinking about why communities disintegrate or why they, you know, you know, they, they might get off the ground in like a fever of idealism, but eventually they sort of dissipate or implode or whatever. I'm interested in the function of language as a catalyst to this, um, whether it's a good experience and a good community that is healthy, if such a thing exists, or if it's a community that succumbs to, um, you know, whatever it is, negativity, backbiting, um, corruption. Like, I think it's so important when you're working with other people uh, for a common cause or you're in a family or you're in whatever to be extremely conscious of how you communicate. I think this is at the heart of why they fall. Like people don't listen well or they don't listen with the right level of consciousness or they speak in a way that is either purposefully or inadvertently hurtful. Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe I'm, you know, overanalyzing this, but it's been on my mind. No, I mean, I think um, I think it's well, I think for me, the thing that matters maybe more than the common language is the common values. Because I think everyone talks differently. We all come from different places. We all come to different issues with different kinds of concerns. And I think I wouldn't want to impose a kind of, you know, regulated, you know, homogeneity on how people speak. You know, although I do think shared values are important. You know, and I think, for example, I mean, sometimes I think um, – I mean, I think there's, there is such a power to, to naming and claiming um, with language and also to use language for specificity and for rigor of analysis. And so that's all really important. But I think sometimes people get really caught up on kind of vocabulary. And I think, so for example, in, in you know, some of the trans and queer and uh, gender-defiant, gender-nonconforming worlds that I exist in, you know, the language changes every few months, right? And so someone who maybe isn't so caught up on what's been going on the last six months 
might use like a slightly, you know, inappropriate word, and then people rush to a kind of judgment and ostracism. Well, I was that I think. Well, I was just going to so say. I was going to say like like one of the things about uh, talking with you um, that worried me, like prior to the you know getting on the phone, is like the terminology and making sure I didn't screw something up, like you know pronouns. Uh, making sure that, like, I refer to the, to the community in the appropriate way. Like, there's a there's a fluidity to it, and there's also just like you know me coming at it from like a semi blind perspective. <laughs> well, I think people should always should always do as much as possible to know about what they're talking about. But I think once you're in those worlds, I think sometimes people work, worry a little too much about the vocabulary and not enough about the content. I think the content is really what's important. So I want to go back uh, to, I think we should start a little bit, uh, you know, closer to the beginning of your biography, because I think it, it obviously sets the foundation for your book and for the story that you tell. And I think it's obviously, um, you know, at the heart of who you are. But you come from um, a very difficult family background where your father uh, was abusive and your book opens with you. Uh, visiting his deathbed. So that's pretty bracing stuff. And uh, I guess like, you know, a natural question is like, how did, how did you overcome, not overcome, but how do you live with this? It seems like such a heavy burden. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's interesting in, in writing the end of San Francisco, um, you know, I was really drawn to, expressing vulnerability in as deep a way as possible. And I think, like, as a kid, coming to terms, you know, with myself as, like, a queer person in a world that basically wanted me to die or disappear, I had to cultivate a kind of invulnerability when I went out into the world. And that's how I found other people. You know, that's how I found the things that I believed in and the people that I believed in. But I think now, 20 years later, I really think vulnerability is what's going to save me. And so in the book, I open with deciding to visit my father um, before he died um, uh, of terminal cancer. And um, I had confronted him 11 years before I confronted him about sexually abusing me as a kid. And I told him that I would never speak to him again unless he could acknowledge that abuse. And he was a psychiatrist, and so he had every possible means of accessing ways to acknowledge that, and he never did. Um, but when I so wait, wait, like what, found what, out what, that he was... What would he say to you when you would be like, you abused me? He would just go blank? Well, I only I confronted him, and then I told him I wouldn't speak to him again. So what he said in that moment was that I was psychotic. Um... And and then he called and left one message about how that could never have happened because he was in analysis at this time. <laughs> and if it had happened, it would have come up with his therapist, you know? So he, um, so he was just that deep in denial, just completely... I mean, he denied it, definitely. Yeah. Um, I don't know what was going on inside his head. Um, but I do know when I went to, when I decided, so I decided to visit him when he was dying, even though he acknowledged nothing because I realized, well, he was going to die and I didn't want to think 20 years later 
that I wished I had visited him before he died because I couldn't change that decision, right? And so I thought, well, maybe I'll just make a horrible mistake and I'm going to go there now and see him, but at least I won't regret, you know, after I can no longer change my decision. Um, and so I went there and what was, and I was, so I went to the house where I grew up um, and, you know, very little had changed. And so everyone in my... And, and, you, grew up, and you, grew up in, you grew up in D.C., right? Exactly, yeah. So I grew up in the suburbs in D.C. in um, an upper-middle-class Jewish-assimilated family um, where sort of status and educational attainment were the most important things, for sure. <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, so I went back and... Um, what was really incredible for me was that even in this place where everyone was kind of the way everyone was kind of acting like I was going to kill him, you know, that they had to protect him from me. <laughs> and which of, of course is so ironic, you know, because he's dying of cancer and he's the one who accused me. <laughs> Wait, they, you, Not the other way around. People, you, your family members really thought you were going to kill him. Well, they didn't say that, but they were acting, you know, like I'd be in the room with him in a hospital bed and, you know, they wouldn't let me be there alone, you know, and like he would cough for a second and then everyone would come rushing in, you know, and um, it was almost like in a way I think they were afraid that he was going to acknowledge sexually abusing me and they were, since they had made the choice not to acknowledge it also. Okay, I was going to say. But that would have also threatened them. So they knew, too. They were aware of the whole thing and just were in the denial, too. Well, I don't know what people were aware of. I mean, I can't, you know, I don't know what's going on in their heads. But I know that they never acknowledged it, you know. And um, at that point, I had confronted him, you know, 11 years before. So everyone had at least 11 years to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, especially my mother, you know, who obviously was there the whole time and had the same, you know, similar position of power. Um, you know, it's not like she was a developing, you know, she had a developing brain or, you know, or in the, like, a, like a child or something. Um, but, but what was incredible for me is when I went there, you know, I was able, even though nothing was really arranged to make me feel safe, I was able to be so vulnerable, you know, and I found myself really sobbing and saying things to my father that I had never even imagined that I thought, you know, but in that moment I felt them, you know, and so things like, like, I love you. I didn't think that I did love him, but in that moment I felt like I did, you know, and I said that I didn't want him to die and that I wish we could have had a relationship. And, um, and, and I was sobbing, you know, in this place where, where nothing was safe for me. And what that made me feel, strangely, was a certain kind of strength. It was like, I've changed, you know, I'm somewhere else. I'm not them anymore, you know, and I can actually express myself. Even though my father, he, he couldn't even say he loved me, you know, yeah, what was on he, his deathbed. What was he saying? Was he, was he just receiving this news silently? Mostly. I mean, he was, you know, he was, he was very close to that. I mean, he died a few days after I was there, so he couldn't speak very much. Um, mostly he listened silently, and then every now and then he would ask a question, sometimes one that I might or might not have understood. Um, 
but you know, but he definitely didn't. You know, I would ask him questions, and he would either not respond or let me think of what would he. What he, he said it was like risk. The first thing he said was, um, "Oh, it's nice to see you." You know that. Even that that made me start sobbing. You know that was like. Uh, but that was about as far as it went in terms of, um, you know, there were a few other moments, but I mean, mostly he didn't say that much. And what he did say occasionally, I think one time there was something kind of, um, like he asked what time it is, you know, like very simple questions. It wasn't, he didn't say that much. Right. And, and do you, and you feel good about having done this? Like, it sounds like it was like net positive. Like you're glad you did it. Yeah, I mean, it really, um, it was very affirming in the sense of me being able to express everything that I wanted and then everything that I didn't even realize I thought of. You know, like I was telling him that it would still make a difference if he, for me, if he could acknowledge sexually abusing me, that he was going to die. And my father does not believe in any afterlife or any religion or anything like that. He believes he's going to die and it's over. So there's no reason for him to hold these things in. You know, and I, so I was able to say that, and I was also able to sob and to... Um, so I was able to both hold, you know, an openness and hold him accountable and, and tell him what would make a difference for me. And I was also able to express my emotions. And, sure. and so, so that's, that's where the book starts. And I think, you know, another thing about the end of San Francisco is I think I really wanted to resist the conventional arc, you know, of the kind of the way we're supposed to see memoir. Right. And so in a way, my book starts with the ending, not the beginning, you know, but that ending is the beginning, you know, and that's how, that's, I think, closer to how our lives work, you know, how we think about memory and loss and in- intimacy and instigation and, and our own personal histories. Yeah, it's like you work backwards from epiphanies or something. Like, it's, that seems to make sense. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly backwards because, you know, it, it starts at the end and then, then it goes more to the present and then it's kind of everything all at once. It does end in childhood, though, so I guess in a way it ends with that feeling um, of being trapped, that place between childhood and the world is what I call it. So, so yeah, and for like, me, what, that was like... Well, I want to ask you about your childhood, uh, because, you know, in light of the abuse that you were enduring and, you know, the difficult relationships with your uh, your parents, your family, um, you know, uh, figuring out... Um, I don't know how to like navigate that while at the same time, um, you know, growing up, coming into your, um, sexual identity, like how did all of, like, what kind of kid were you? Like, were you very, uh, quiet? Like, how did you, you know, like, what what were you like? (laughs) Totally. I was, yeah, I was definitely a total introvert when I was a child. And looking back, I basically just, I was like, basically like a textbook kind of case of an abuse survivor. Like I retreated into my head, you know, and into the relative safety of books, you know. And so I was a total overachiever at school, and I had good relationships with teachers, but I was completely scared of kids, especially boys. Because boys, you know, I was called sissy and faggot, like starting around age four. And um, even before I knew what they meant, I was called them, you know. And so... 
you know, I was always taunted. Uh, the playground was always a really scary place, you know. Recess, that was like the worst time of the day. <laughs> 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 uh, and, um, and so, you know, and, and like, let's say by age 12, I remember in sixth grade, I was, I was reading War and Peace, you know, and I was reading, um, Budenbrooks by Thomas Mann. And, um, those were, that was, that was my interior world, right? Because what I liked about those books is that I could get lost, you know, in, let's say, you know, like War and Peace, it's like generations of these families' lives. <laughs> right. And I could really just imagine that I was in there somewhere, you know, and not where I actually was. Um, and then I think somewhere around uh, 12, 13, 14, 15 um, is where I realized, oh, I'm never going to find other kids or other people who I can relate to if they only see this scared um, facade. Because it was a facade. You know, it was like I had this whole interior world, but I didn't, I was too scared of the world. And so I consciously made an effort to appear kind of the opposite. Um, and so not caring about people around, you know, like what people thought of me, you know, dressing differently, you know, being more of kind of like a freak, you know, and embracing that word. So what, um, so what were you, also, what, what were you okay. dressing like? What were you dressing like? Well, you know, it's funny. So as a kid, I totally dressed, it was like what my father dressed me in. So we went to Sears. I would have like, you know, really skinny, um, you know, like polyester blend pants with like a plaid shirt and then really square um, uh, sort of bronze glasses and a bowl cut. So this, and this was, you know, the 80s. So I guess that was <laughs> timely or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I think in my transition period, so the kids at school who I sort of looked up to were the mods because they were the ones that looked kind of tough to me and like, Edgy. And so that was where, so then I started wearing like loafers with, I put dimes in them instead of pennies and, and then V-neck sweaters from, you know, from the thrift store and turtlenecks. And then, and then quickly the mods changed from mod to punk, um, because they were like, oh, mod, that's, that's not tough enough. We want to be tough, really tough with punk. And so I sort of followed that aesthetic as well. Like, you know, I dyed my hair black, and um, I was probably a little more goth. You know, I had pendants, you know, all black clothes pretty much for many years. <laughs> uh, although, I guess, and also, of course, burgundy. I mean, you know, burgundy, like other dark, like rich colors. You know, that's the more goth side, I guess. The burgundy and the um, the dark, the mustard and the, the dark greens, you know, navy, um and and then from there, I guess, you know, after leaving high school, then I got a little brighter with it, you know, so I, you know, I had the big, low, manic, panic hair and um, plaid pants and lots of dangly earrings. And um, and then over the years, it's developed into some version, you know, now I wear a lot of like French cuff shirts and, you know, um, women's sweaters and you know, the brighter, the most, the brighter and most clashing combination of colors, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, what I think, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, when did you come out? Well, I guess, I guess officially, I came out when I left 
so when I left high school, um, like between 18 and 19. Um, and I mean, I think as a teenager, um, well, there was no one out in my, in my high school and there were a few of us who like everyone knew about and had been, you know, taunted for years. And I think the way I dealt with that was I wasn't exact. People would say, Oh, are you gay? And I would say, well, everyone's bisexual. <laughs> it's like the total 80s. I think that was just super popular in the 80s to say that. Maybe people still do it. I don't know. But, um, and, and they didn't really, I went, you know, most, I went to a school where people were supposed to be thought, thinking, you know what I mean? So they couldn't exactly argue with that. They, they didn't mean they didn't think I was a fag and didn't, you know, that I wasn't like a worthless, you know, piece of garbage, but they didn't, um, they didn't go too much further because I was also questioning them, you know, that, that was, that's why it was a good response. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, well, like, so who are, who are you? You know, you don't think everyone's bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of a, a nice way to like turn it back around on them. And it makes me, it makes me wonder, like, what do you think about, uh, human sexuality? Because I've, you know, I've read things over the years where, you know, that seems sort of convincing, like the whole like 10 point scale where like a bisexual person is a five and like the super hetero is like a 10 and a super gay is a one. And everyone's got a little bit of both in them somehow. Like that seems to sort of make sense to me. Is that like a really naive view of it? Or do you have similar thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I don't really think it's a scale necessarily. I think it's, um, but I think we all have a wide range of attractions, you know, and I think we're all socialized to be a particular thing. And usually that means, you know, this very tired, outdated definition of straight normalcy, you know. And But I think once we get rid of that, if we could all just get rid of that socialization, then I think there would be much wider, you know, variety of, self-expression and it would be across, you know, really broad spectrum. And some people, you know, maybe one day you have one set of desires and another day you have another, maybe at one time of day you have another, you know, and I think we should all have the freedom to be able to express ourselves, you know, in whatever ways feel most satisfying and empathic and glorious and transformative and challenging and nurturing. I agree. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it's, I'm thinking of, um, God, what's the, what was the movie with, uh, Liam Neeson? What's the name of the, the sexual scientist from Indiana university that did like the big mid 20th century. Why am I blanking on his name? Oh, Kinsey. Kinsey. Yeah. Yeah. Robert the, Kinsey. Yeah. The Kinsey report. And he was like talking like those, the survey statistics were very interesting, you know, where it was like 40%. Uh, of me, you know, men interviewed, you know, claim to have had, um, you know, same sex, uh, you know, uh, relationships or activity or whatever, which is a much higher number than I think people generally consider, you know, I've always been sort of fascinated by that. And I think it speaks to that, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, variety or, um, mutability or I don't know, like what you were just saying about people having, you know, multiple different desires and, um, you know, uh, throughout their lives or throughout their course of their day. <laughs> Absolutely. So, okay. So I want to ask you about leaving, uh, by the way, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm doing like a really bad job talking about this stuff. Can you hear it in my voice? <laughs> 
I, 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 just, I think it's going well so far. You do? <laughs> I feel like you must just be like shaking your head like poor, straight, confused boy or – you know, no, no, no. Well, I think you're doing a good job of not asking the really stupid questions that people ask sometimes. You just, and I think the questions you are asking, I think, feel like, especially the ones like directly connected to, you know, writing and the book, they, they feel particularly nuanced and like bringing up sort of like a complicated um, engagement. I feel like you. Um, need, I feel like you need a buzzer, and like if I do ask one of those stupid questions, you could just like sound it off. <laughs> because... <laughs> I'll just say, I'll just say, talk to the hand. Yes. I'll bring back the mid nineties <laughs> um, expressions that I'm actually invoking in this book that I'm writing right now. Well, you know, it's just it's not completely familiar terrain to me. So again, like I, I just I find myself grasping for like vocabulary. It's like you know that's what I think the the struggle is. But um, I want to ask. But maybe that's a good place to be in. I think sometimes when we're grasping for vocabulary, that's why the most interesting um, conversation arises. Well, I hope so. And I hope that I'm, I, I have a feeling there are people listening who might be similar to me. And I hope that like at the very least, like it can be a learning experience for us, you know. Um, but uh, I want to ask you about leaving home. And, you know, that's when you said you kind of officially came out. And I'm interested in knowing when you started, uh, you know, how like that shift, your years at college at Brown, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. So, oh, go ahead. Just like the evolution of your um, identity, you know, and your understanding of yourself. Totally. So, yeah. I mean, like, so as a kid, I really internalized the notion that I had to do better than my parents. You know, in order to get away, I had to go to a better college than they'd ever gone to. I had to make more money and perhaps, you know buy a bigger house, and live in an even more unhappy marriage (laughs) in order to prove that I had outdone them, you know? And so I started on that path. You know, I did go to a college that they considered and everyone in my birth family considered better than any college they had ever gone to. And so, so I went to Brown University, and I went there, um... Because among those kind of highly rarefied, you know, like East Coast liberal arts or Ivy League schools, you know, like Brown is, like it was the one that was known for allegedly having a kind of radical activist kind of presence. Um, And there were a few things that structurally facilitated that. For example, like having an open curriculum where you didn't have to declare a major and you could create your own, you know, that was, you know, things like that. Um, like that really did distinguish itself, you know, pretty dramatically from some other similar schools, like another school I had thought about was Columbia, but they had this like really rigid core curriculum. And I was like, forget it. I was like, I'll be in New York, but I can't study that horrible crap (laughs) from like 19th century England. I mean, are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, what could be worse than 19th century England? Well, except like 16th century England. (laughs) Yeah, medieval. I mean, don't let me... (laughs) I, I, I was going to say like medieval England, but you know, I, I kind of had a similar feeling about that. Like I try, I remember taking a British lit, uh, literature survey, which might've been part of my core curriculum and just being like, my God, like what's wrong with me? I can't, you know, I had a hard time pushing through. You know? Totally. And I mean, of course there were like iconoclasts and original thinkers, you know, of those time periods too, but that's not usually who you study in a core curriculum, you know? And I think, um, so anyway, I went there, like, kind of looking for, 
for activism and other kind of like freaks. And and one thing that immediately was relatively, you know, clear was it was like I was just queer as soon as I got there. Like no one no one really it was just obvious and we all knew, right? And it's not that I still didn't have like internal conversations and work to do to like sort of come to terms with my own desires, but they were, you know, accepted, you know, in that environment. But the thing that was um and so, so at first, there was kind of an intoxication, you know, with this shift. You know, it was like I could finally be myself. Right. And also, the things that used to make me, like, sort of, like, like, you know, an outsider, but not in an accepted way, were suddenly kind of cool. So, so, like, I didn't, so in high school, I kind of cultivated this kind of, you know, dissidence, like, like, oh, like, you know, of course I don't care about, you know, all these things around me, or these idiots, those idiots. And I really wanted to inspire other kids who felt silent to do the same. I was like, do you really care about those morons, you know? And, um, but I also had to kind of pretend that I didn't, that I didn't care about some of these other things, like, even though I was an overachiever or, like, high school students, like, oh, I don't really care about this. But so, like, when I got to this overachiever college, it was like suddenly it was cool to be both smart and weird at the same time. And I was like, oh, this is great. I could, you know, like, and that, both of those had status. And because I was comfortable with both of those, I had a certain kind of status that I had not really felt before. And I think at first that was really exciting, but what ended up feeling like was that I was kind of inhabiting kind of what I had always wanted to challenge. You know, like people were like, oh, have you tried this new edgy thing? And that new edgy thing was me. You know, I was this commodity. <laughs> and, and then in doing activism at the school, you know, I also realized that most people were totally apathetic. And I ended up becoming involved in this struggle to get Brown to, um, to not um, turn down admission to students based on their inability to pay. So what was called at the time, brought out a policy of need aware, which meant we can take into, you know, um, like if you don't make enough money to pay for it, we can turn you down for that reason. And so we were fighting for what was called need blind, which is kind of like an ableist <laughs> way of speaking, but at least it's a positive. It's using blind as a positive thing. And, um, and so we had this whole movement, you know, it got a lot of press attention, and it actually is where I learned a lot of the skills of organizing. We were organizing against the administration, you know. We were, we were like a 17-page document about why need-aware was racist and classist, and we took over the main administrative building, and we got arrested, and, you know, the university was pressing charges, and we had, there was an article in the Washington Post, and all this stuff, and basically I did that instead of going to classes, because that's where I was learning. I was like, I don't need to go to these boring classes, I'm learning from this. And, um, and then at the end of the year, really what it led to was nothing. I mean, no structural change at the university. And, and I say in the book, in the end of San Francisco, I say, well, that's where I learned the most. You know, and so I realized that I needed to get further away from who I was supposed to be, you know, in order to undo and unlearn the violence that I had grown up with. I couldn't be trying to beat my parents on their own terms. I had to reject those terms. And so that's when I moved to San Francisco, you know, in search of other queers and freaks and outsiders and 
you know, um, other people who were fleeing childhood and everything we were supposed to be, who were fleeing places where we couldn't or weren't able to express ourselves, you know, in the full, you know, flamboyance or, or intimacy or explosiveness or candor or, you know, glamour or, um, that we really felt, you know, and so, so that's where, and I feel like that's where I really learned the most is, is, you know, in my life was like doing that, moving to San Francisco and kind of rejecting the terms of the world as it had been fed to me as, you know, an upper middle class, um, child in, you know, um, an assimilated Jewish family, um, and who was, you know, sexually abused by my parents and, and the way that that abuse was hidden because of their success, that people only saw their success. They only saw that I was doing well in school. So they didn't ask the question like, you know, why do you always look scared? You know, why, um, you know, they didn't ask the questions that mattered because of that success. That's and an interesting. So, that's an interesting point. You know, like I've had this thought. I mean, it's like kind of unrelated, but um, you know, of a similar vein. Where, you know, especially in like the medical profession, your father was a shrink. He had like doctor affixed to his name. Like that as a social signifier carries like a lot of weight. You know, like people automatically just like. Um, give to people who are doctors a certain level of esteem. I've always felt that in my life. I think lawyers to a degree have that too. But when someone's a doctor, it's like, you know, there's something kind of bulletproof about them, you know, in people's minds, whether it's earned or not, you know, whether they're actually good at their job or whether they're actually, um, you know, being good people, you know, um, can kind of be good camouflage. Absolutely. You know, and that combined with sort of financial success, it's kind of like no one even looks, you know. Right. And it's funny because like as a kid, when I was this overachiever in school, I was kind of, it was like I was given two choices. It was like, you can be a doctor or a lawyer. So it's funny that you mentioned those two professions. <laughs> <laughs> so like, oh, what do you want to be a doctor? And then by the end of high school, they were kind of like, oh, I don't think that's going to work out. So they're like, okay, you can be a college professor. If you really don't care about money, you can be something really wild. <laughs> a college professor. So um, I want to talk about you moving to San Francisco in those early days of being there. Um, there had to have been some kind of honeymoon period with it. I mean, was there? Like how, I mean, because I, I remember going there for the first time as a young person with like, you know, similar but different idealistic views of the place. And, you know, there was a certain, there's a certain magic to it. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, one of the things in the end of San Francisco that I'm, I'm really trying to resist nostalgia. So I think, because a lot of times, so when I moved there in 92, um, yes, there were possibilities for, you know, flamboyance and for existing outside of mainstream consumerist norms that I had never imagined. You know, people who lived lives that were totally on the fringe and they were able to do that because they made that space. They created it, you know. And the people that I found, you know, in order to imagine and create and cultivate my own values, you know, um, that was a lot of that had to do with that place at that particular time, you know, and, you know, wanting to demand accountability and intimacy and, you know, creating relationships 
based on desire and desire based on relationships or politics built through, you know, common projects and a shared kind of communal sense of, um, of, of, of um, taking care of one another and, and creating something to replace the violence in the world around us. And whether that be the violence of, you know, mainstream um, normative straight identity or the violence of, of mainstream gay culture that kind of mimics that. We wanted to create something entirely different, you know. And I think, so there was this possibility in that, but at the same time, you know, this was the early 90s, and it felt like, especially as a fag and moving to San Francisco, it felt like everywhere people were dying of AIDS and of drug addiction and suicide. And I think sometimes nostalgia erases the actual reality right. and replaces it with a commodity, you know, and, it, and it's like that kind of commodity, you know, it, it, it denies all of our complicated lived experiences, and I think actually it really denies my experience because when I got there, yes, there were these things that were possible, but I felt desperate, you know, and alone, and um, even if I was finally finding people I could connect with, I still was, everything was hard, you know, it was hard, like, not to get strung out on crystal meth, you know, it was hard, like, to find, um, you know, people who actually meant something to me, and... Um, it was hard to pay rent, you know, it was hard to, um, you know, it felt, it just felt so emotionally raw. And I think, um, and that was a good thing in a certain way because it opened up the possibility for, um, for intimacy and for change. Um, well, yeah, and what but, about, and what about, I, what about friends? Like, you know, you, you went through your Brown years. I mean, you, you were there and then left and then went to San Francisco um, it was San Francisco where you started to really connect and meet people? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I had, I had, uh, so I only went to Brown, I went to Brown for one year and then I left. That's when I moved to San Francisco. Um, and so that is where, and I, I moved with one friend who I had met at Brown. And so, um, but San Francisco was really, yeah, where I found all of my, all of my formative early relationships, for sure. I mean, I had a few in high school, but those relationships were more based on me supporting the other person, and also they were they were shut off emotionally. I mean, they were emotionally present, but we never we were always trying not to talk about the things that actually mattered. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, we would go out to a bar and get smashed, and talk about how sad we were and how trapped. But we didn't talk about what we were really trapped by, you know. We didn't talk about sexuality. We didn't talk about desire. We didn't talk about, you know, wanting to really get away. Or, I don't know, maybe I wanted to get away in different ways. And, but, um, but I think the first relationship, the first relationship where I really trusted someone on a deep level was actually someone I met at Brown, and we moved to San Francisco together. And then the rest of the people who were my early formative relationships um, I would say that that I met them then, yeah, like when I was, you know, 19, 20, 21 in San Francisco. And then when did you um, start identifying as Matilda as opposed to Matthew? Well, you know, that's interesting. So um, I – that was a little later, and actually it's funny because I'm in Boston now, but I lived in Boston um, in, uh, in 95 – and in Boston, at that time, that was actually, so I went back. Um, I went back to Brown at one point. And I went back 
when I was getting ready to confront my father about sexually abusing me. And I went back for a few reasons. And one was I wanted to make sure that I never wanted to go back again before I confronted him. (laughs) (laughs) Because I knew it was never going to be, you know, an affordable kind of option. And, and also I had to go back there if I wanted to go somewhere to another college because, um, I had left, you know, I was doing so much activism, I didn't finish my classes. And so I'd left on what was called severe academic probation. Um, and so, so I went back, you know, and when I went back, the people I had started in school with were seniors. And so they were getting ready to graduate. And it was really instructive for me because I saw these kids who I had seen as kind of awkward and alienated, a little weird, but super creative and vibrant. They now seemed like basically they were like shuffling around abstractions in order to gain stature in the battleground of ideas. You know, they were, they had kind of, most people had really internalized this very, um, the kind of worldview or at least the the um, class status of that worldview that I had rejected, you know, whether, regardless of what their original background was. Because that's what that kind of school socializes you into. Right. And into this really combative, like, you argue about everything that doesn't matter. So you can, like, <laughs> argue about something in the news, or you can argue about, you know, something Judith Butler wrote, you know, but you don't actually... It's just like this game. It's just like this stupid status game. And... You know, I saw that, and it was really instructive because I saw, like, oh, that's exactly what I don't want to become. And the only person, I remember one person who, when I met her, you know, my first year at school, she was kind of just like your average, like, upper-middle-class, like, sort of sheltered, like, intellectual person. And since she she wasn't trying to pretend to be anything else, and she was still like that at the end, but everyone else who had been these, like, weirdos were suddenly, like you know, talking about, like, whatever, you know, whatever, like, abstract theory, especially. And I felt like the more politically radical a course was, the more intellectually elitist. And so I knew that I didn't I didn't want that, you know. And so then I moved to Boston because it was the closest place with a subway. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you and that's where you became uh, Matilda? Yeah, well, you know, and then in Boston, it was like I didn't want to be near anything that had anything to do with college, even though I was that age. And so I'd always been a bit of a club kid, but I, that was like something that existed among other things. In Boston, there weren't that many other options. And so I kind of became a club kid. And, um, what, just, mean, just meaning what? You were time, just doing drugs and dancing at clubs? Exactly. Like going out, dressing up, you know, choosing the right outfits and, you know, doing drugs, um, and, and charting it out, you know, too. So, like, in a very, like, over-the-top kind of glamorous, queenie, like, ragged um, thrift store kind of way, you know, it, it was decadent, and it was all, but it was also, it was also the first time that I was really friends with fags, you know, other fags, other queens, like, that was my social circle. And, and I think, as, you know, when you're a club kid, you, you tend, at that time at least, People tend to like choose, um, you know, what they, you know. People will call it a club name, right? And um, at first, I was experimenting with the name rhubarb because that was the color of my hair. <laughs> 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 but then my closest friend at the time, um, 
started calling me Matilda, and I was like, oh, that makes much more sense. You know, it just fits much better with, like, who I am in the world. And and it became not just my club name, but just my name, you know, in the world. And so, yeah, so that was in Boston in 95. Well, uh, okay. And, and now then, here I am in Boston again. I know. It's good. You've come full circle. <laughs> well, hopefully not full circle. Um, in the sense that I'm not getting stuck in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a research trip. That's all it is. Exactly. It's purely immersive writing. <laughs> so I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to ask you about... Uh, I guess you call it politics because I've been reading, you know, I was reading you and reading interviews you've done and things you've said about, um, you know, gay politics. If that's the way that, is that the right terminology? Gay politics, the gay movement, uh, the fight for rights, marriage equality, gays in the military, uh, the it gets better campaign. And you say a lot of things that cut against a lot of the popular political feeling in the liberal intelligentsia, you know, like it's, um, you have different ideas and you have some pretty sharp criticisms of these things. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, (laughs) but you know, and, and like, I think coming at it from me, like my perspective where like I, I support gay rights. I'm, you know, I consider myself, I guess, uh, very liberal socially. Um, I have a really hard time talking about, um, you know, again, it's a terminology issue when it comes to politics. I just know I want everyone to be free and to have the basic necessities and, you know, et cetera. Um, but I feel like I can, you know, I can sit here and watch and it's, it gets better video and be like, oh, this is a good thing. Like some young uh, kid is going to hopefully see this and maybe it would make some small difference or maybe even a big difference in like a decision to not um, do something drastic or hurt, you know, hurt themselves or something like that. And you know, do you know what I'm saying? And like, I can look at the gay marriage, um, you know, uh, news and watch people getting married on the courthouse steps. And I can feel good about that. But you seem to think that, uh, it's like, what, what do you seem to think about it? (laughs) Totally. Well, I think you touched on it when you said that you think everyone should have, um, the basic necessities. And I think, I think that's something that most people would probably agree on. I mean, there definitely are exceptions, like, you know, the people who own everything in this country. Um, but, but I think the problem with the mainstream game movement is that what it's come to center around is acquiring straight privilege at any cost. And so things like marriage and military inclusion have become, you know, those are, are the signature fights. You know, so it's becoming part of dominant systems of oppression without changing anything structurally otherwise. And instead of providing basic resources for everyone, so things like housing or health care or the right to stay in this country or leave if you want to, a sex life that matters, um, those things should be available to everyone, not just people who are willing to conform to, you know, some outdated, tacky, oppressive institution like marriage, for example, you know. And I think, um, for me, the sort of the way that the mainstream game movement centers around these assimilationist goals, like becoming part of dominant systems of oppression, you know, actually narrows the options for everyone rather than creating more options. 
So you, know, you, think, and you think marriage is a dominant system of oppression? Absolutely. I mean, marriage, I think, I mean, if we did a survey, I would say probably most straight people would agree that marriage is cocky and oppressive, even if they'll say, <laughs> well, my marriage, don't get me wrong, my marriage, honey, is great, but overall, you know, and I think um, that's how mar- marriage, that's how marriages functioned, you know, over the years, you know, it started with like women and children as property. Children are still property in marriage, you know, women are often still property, and and also marriage is a you know, has been a way for a wealthy white family to preserve, you know, their, you know, uh, financial resources. And so that's how we see, you know, with the mainstream gay movement, it becomes all about tax breaks and inheritance rights. And so, sure, for like David Geffen or for Ellen DeGeneres, you know, tax breaks and inheritance rights those are the last thing, the, the, the rhetoric they'll use is, this is the last thing, you know, standing in the way of full citizenship. And sure, for Ellen DeGeneres and David Geffen, you know, wealthy white gay people with a lot of power and prestige and privilege, that might be the last thing standing in the way of so-called full citizenship. But, but what about everyone else? And I, I really think that there's a, there are a lot of resources now in you know, mainstream gay institutions of power. And I think if people actually took those resources and censored the people who did not have access, so instead of seeing, like, some wealthy gay couple, you know, in, like, whatever, like, matching Vera Wang bridal gowns, you know, and, <laughs> and up, you know, some, like, blood-drenched South African diamonds, like, instead of seeing that, if we saw some kid you know, let's say 13 or 14 years old, who's like, hey, I was, I was beaten up by my parents because I was queer. I went to school, and, you know, the guidance counselor told me that I was worthless. I go out in the world, and, you know, people spit on me. So I got, I got the hell out of the town where I grew up. I ran away, and now I'm in San Francisco, and I realize, well, I can't afford to live here. You know, I don't, I, how am I going to myself and you know now I'm strung out and you know I'm I'm on the streets I'm addicted to drugs and I'm just trying to figure out a way to cope you can't tell that kid well hey marriage is going to solve all your problems <laughs> you know and I think the gay movement that actually has access you now has access to to media resources has access to like structural you know resources what if they instead of centering you know these wealthy white um straight-acting couples over and over and over again, what if they centered, you know, some trans kid who's on the street, you know, addicted to drugs and just trying to survive? And I actually think more people would relate, you know, because I think the rhetoric of the mainstream gay movement is like, well, we have to act, you know, just like, you know, I don't know, Dick Cheney or something in order to get people to accept us. And I think actually more people are going to relate to some kid who's throwing out on drugs and trying to figure out a way to cope than they're going to relate to Dick Cheney. Well, yeah, I mean, speaking of the Cheney stuff, just, I don't know if you've been following this, but this whole like uh, tete-a-tete or the spat between Mary and Liz Cheney is very fascinating to me. Like, um, you know, I don't know if you followed it, but uh, have you followed it? Well, I've seen a little bit of it. I mean, generally when I hear Mary Cheney, you know, I mean, there's an old expression that goes way back. <laughs> oh, Mary, right? <laughs> and I feel like 
you know, Mary Cheney was like the spokesperson for Coors, you know, and Coors was boycotted for decades by gay businesses. Wait, what's, what's um, Coors? What is Coors? Uh, forgive me oh, for Coors not Beer. Oh, Coors. Coors. Oh, yeah, Coors Beer. Okay. I thought it was Yeah, so she was a corporate spokesperson for them, and they hired her to kind of like whitewash, you know, or gaywash their, their agenda, you know, because they were boycotted for years by gay companies because, you know, it's a right-wing um, yeah. Their foundation is one of the largest right-wing foundations in the country. And um, so, like, anything Mary Cheney says, I mean, come on, you know what I mean? And it's like, um, so this whole thing about, like, yeah, like, Mary Cheney is insulted, you know, that that her sister doesn't support gay marriage. It's kind of really, I think it's, this is how gay marriage generally functions. It hides the issues that actually matter. You know, the Cheney family, I mean, can we think of a family more responsible for, you know, corporate profiteering, plundering of indigenous resources, and murder through, like, vicious U.S. wars of aggression around the world? (laughs) That's what the Cheney family needs to talk about. They need to talk about holding themselves accountable for that violence and, like, coming to terms with it. Not about who can get married. (laughs) <laughs> I feel. I feel like. I feel like you need to. I feel like you need to. Uh, I need to see you on the news commentating, or I want to. I want you to run for office. <laughs> Would you ever do that? <laughs> I don't know if I want to run for office, but I'd be glad to be on the news commentating. Okay. Well, I've. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time and. Uh, and for being patient with me as I kind of work through my terminology issues, and uh, I certainly wish you all the best with this book and uh, with whatever comes next. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I can't wait to hear it. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That is Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Go get her excellent memoir. It is called The End of San Francisco, available now from City Lights Books. You can find Matilda online at MatildaBernsteinSycamore.com. She's on Twitter, at MBSycamore. Uh, You can email her at NobodyPasses at gmail.com, or you can call her at 206-325-5029. This is on her website. (laughs) I'm just reporting the facts here. Reach out to Matilda uh, via one of these methods uh, for those of you who are so inclined. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the uh, theme song music. I'm playing Christmas carols today because uh, it's Christmas. Is that obnoxious? Just trying to, uh, you know, get in the spirit a little bit. And hey, don't forget about the app. Speaking of the spirit, what a nice transition that is. Uh, get the app, the free official other people app available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program and to access the full archives. Uh, so please go get that. The app itself is free. Otherwise, uh, I hope you're doing well. And if you're not doing well, hang in there. It gets better. Actually, I don't know if it gets better. I'm trying to be intellectually honest with you here. It might get worse. But listen, uh, let's hope that it gets better. (laughs) Let's try to be optimistic about this. It's Christmas, for God's sake. It will get better. It can get better. It might get better. Please remember that Rembrandt's father was a corn miller and that Henry Adams owned a Mercedes-Benz in France in 1904. That's all for now. Thanks again to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Go get The End of San Francisco. I will be back soon with another conversation with another writerly bookish individual. 
Uh, in the meantime, have a nice day. Enjoy your Christmas holiday. Relax. Eat some food. Go for a walk. Whatever you want to do. Make some snow angels. Get in a snowball fight. Uh, get drunk at the dinner table. Have a conversation with your family that somehow escalates into a horrible shouting match. Whatever you want to do. I'm not here to judge. I am here to podcast. I need to bring this to an end. That's my responsibility right now uh, as your host. I need to find a dignified and professional way to conclude today's podcast. And uh, seeing as the show is hoping to benefit the ASPCA in a charitable manner, I figured I might sign off by letting a homeless shelter dog howl pitifully into your ears. <laughs>